Hello and welcome to Crosscut Talks, a podcast replay of Crosscut's live interviews with the people who shape our world. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the news and politics editor at Crosscut. If there's one thing most Americans can agree on right now, it's that we can't agree on much. And a lot of these disagreements fall along party lines. Extreme political tribalism, along with the rise of white nationalist groups and the polarizing nature of President Donald Trump, have prompted some to ask if we're heading toward the next civil war. Crosscut gathered a panel of experts to help chart the root causes of all this division and where we might go from here. Oren Cass is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. He also served as domestic policy director for Mitt Romney's 2012 presidential campaign. Thomas Edsel is an op-ed columnist at the New York Times and professor of political journalism at Columbia University. He also covered politics at the Washington Post from 1981 to 2006. Christopher Parker is a professor of political science at the University of Washington and an award-winning author. His work focuses on the way that race and racism impacts Western democracies. Tay Wiles is a freelance journalist and correspondent for High Country News, where she's covered militias in the Western states and conflicts over public lands. Jamel Bowie, a columnist for The New York Times and political analyst for CBS News, moderated the discussion. This conversation is sponsored by Comcast and the Washington Policy Center. It was recorded on May 4th, 2019 at Seattle University as part of the Crosscut Festival. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming out. And we don't have a ton of time for this panel, so I want to jump, jump right into it. Uh, title of the session, title of the panel again, is Has the Next Civil War Already Started? And um, I'm going to say straight up, it has not. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, if you, if you look at America in the 1850s, the 10 years leading up to the secession crisis, things weren't just divided, right? There was uh, paramilitary violence in Kansas and Missouri. Uh, there were, there's a Fugitive Slave Act and sort of like a kind of a civil society rebellion against slave catchers. Um, the temperature of the United States have been turned up uh, to a level uh, unseen since. And there's nothing like that in American society today, nothing even approaching it. So uh, I think we can say from the outset that, no, the next civil war um, has not already started. Uh, uh, but there are deep divides in American society. There are deep cleavages in the country. And so I think it's worthwhile talking about those and talking about the prospects um, uh, for resolving those, what kind of impact they're having on our politics, and so on and so forth. So to start, the panel, I want to ask the panelists, um, what do you think are those major divides in American society? I can name a couple myself, but I think people have different uh, perspectives on what, what they are and what they look like. And we can start with you, Tom. All right. How do we turn this on? I think it's already on. Is this on? Yes. Okay. Um, first, uh, under the stage, we have AK-47s for anyone who... Uh, wants them. Uh, I think what's happened is that uh, in, in American politics, they, they, 
the idea of being a Democrat or Republican has changed in a way that makes things much more hostile between the two parties. Political scientists call this effective polarization uh, or affective uh, partisanship. People put their identities into their political allegiance. They feel themselves to be a Democrat. They often, this is not ideological so much, it's not a principled position, it's a belief that you are a Democrat or are a liberal, or on the other side, that you are a Republican or a conservative. And you see the other side threatening not just your beliefs, but literally your identity. And that makes things much more difficult to engage people uh, ever since really Tom DeLay became a powerhouse in Congress. The hostility between the two branches has become apparent. They don't, they don't socialize or see each other. And that has filtered down into the population. People, I live mainly in a community of Democrats, they hate Republicans. When I go and I see Republicans, they hate Democrats. There is a different tone and tenor, and it has become personalized or captured in this sense of identity and who you are. And so you have the, you have, it's not civil war, but it is certainly a very hostile, difficult world, and one in which compromise in this process then becomes, to compromise means you not only are compromising like on a tax bill for a tax rate here or there, but you're sort of giving up part of yourself that is a much harder thing to do in, in politics than to, to negotiate uh, something that involves basically numbers and transferring who gets which benefits. It's who, how much of yourself are you willing to give up? And people are not willing to give up much of themselves. But on that pleasant note, let me pass it on to <laughs> our next. Um, yep, this is on. Uh, so my coverage has primarily focused on the people and places of the American West. I've covered a lot of um, right-wing militia groups and extremist groups in the American West. Also the Bundys, who were the um, ranchers who had armed standoffs with the federal government in Nevada and Oregon. And so that's sort of where my perspective comes from on these issues, is looking at a region within the U.S. and um, thinking about how it fits into these issues um, nationally. First, I think one of the largest divides... Um, that I'm sure others will talk about as well is around race and religion. There's clearly a latent racism and white supremacy and fear of people of different ethnic and religious backgrounds manifesting in overt ways in society today. The divide, I think, is more of a spectrum than a chasm with some of the most extreme manifestations we see at Charlottesville or hate crimes that we see reported almost every day, such as the shooting at the synagogue in Southern California just a few days ago. Um, these, I think, all point to a reality that we're facing in which ideologies of hate that are nurtured by misinformation online um, come to take shape in the real world. So I would count immigration as part of, um, part of this divide and how we relate to one another around race. The, the rhetoric the president uses around building the wall, defining who is, who is crossing the border, what, what the crisis is, if there is a crisis at the border. Um, I think that... Um, these all feed into this growing divide in our country. Um, in the American West, I think it's important to note um, 
anti-Native and anti-Indigenous uh, viewpoints that are central to white, white settlement and the myths that we use to understand this region um, that still persist today. Um, I think we should include these when we talk about old tolerances taking shape in 2019. An example of this is through natural resource management um, that at times can uh, displace indigenous voices when we talk about how we should be managing wildfire or how to manage a, a hydroelectric dam or a bison range. These are, these are flashpoints in the American West that I think um, carry some of, the, some of the same threads of division that we see on the national stage. And the fact that someone like Cliven and Ammon Bundy were able to gain such a following and um, sort of um, have an impact on politics in this region, I think shows that uh, some of those some of those racialized ways of thinking about resource management are still alive. One other big division in the country today, I think, is the idea and the topic of tr Trump himself. Um, in the reporting that I do, you know, I notice that progressives and conservatives, when they're talking about local issues in their community, they kind of have really um, reasoned discourse. And when Trump comes into the picture, it's sort of like, all bets are off. It, um, when I'm, a lot of the stories that I write ultimately lead back to Trump, but when I'm doing interviews, I find myself trying to sort of ask questions about the real issues first, because once, once he comes up, it's like a black hole of do you or don't you support him, and uh, the conversation can like never return from that. So I think, I know that's sort of a, um, maybe feels like a superficial thing, because it's just one person who's only going to be um, in office for a few years, but I think the topic of Trump is its own cleavage. So what do you think of Trump? <laughs> um, I, I guess I'll, I'll try to make three points because you're always supposed to have three points to make. The, uh, the, the first is I think it's really important to look at trend lines and not absolute levels. It's very easy to look at what's happening at any moment in time and say, that looks bad. Uh, things look very different when you zoom out and look at the actual trajectory in this country. And certainly compared to the 1850s, things are much better. But on, on the vast majority of measures compared to the 1960s or 1970s, I would say things are better. Uh, when you talk about race relations, religious tolerance, these things, the, the trend lines, generally speaking, are, are moving in a good direction in this country. And so uh, I, I think we always have to keep that in, in the back of our mind. Uh, there are two places where things, are, I think, are not moving in a good direction. One. As, as Tom mentioned, is just straightforward political polarization. Uh, and, and the second is economic polarization. Um, I think by far the most concerning and uh, widening divide we have in this country is roughly speaking between the 20% of the population uh, that is benefiting from and thriving in the increasingly complex society we are operating uh, and, and the roughly 80% who are not. Uh, and the, the easiest way to draw that line is to recognize that if, if you think about how we have tried to design our education system, we've said, you know, high school to college to career is sort of the goal, and we're going to invest in getting more people through that. Uh, we get fewer than one in five people smoothly through complete high school, go to college, complete college, get a job that required a college degree. Uh, and that share has frankly not changed very much over 40 plus years of of every reform you can think of, doubling spending per student, all of the investment in higher education. 
and so forth. And, and so what we're seeing uh, is, is divergent economic outcomes. Uh, but I think more importantly with that, we're seeing, we're, we're seeing that separation then manifest itself in, uh, for instance, geographic segregation. Uh, one thing I'm working on right now, and it's hard to get the metric right, but, but we're arguably becoming more economically segregated now than we were historically racially segregated. And that has an uh, in, incredible effect that you, you simply don't notice if you're happy with it. And it doesn't show up in the economic data because in terms of how many iPhones and air conditioners people have, everyone's fine. Uh, but the effects on society are, are I think, incredibly dramatic and, and getting worse. And so, you know, I think conceptually the, the way we have to think about it is that there isn't going to be a civil war. On, on the kinds of dimensions you fight civil wars on, we are incredibly intermixed. It's, it's, it's hard to envision who's fighting who in a civil war. Um, but not to sound overdramatic, I do think we're headed toward a revolution. I, I do think if we do not change our trajectory, we are headed toward a large majority of the population of the country saying, this just doesn't work for us. Uh, and there is no solution to that beyond the, the folks who get to make most of the decisions and for whom it is working, uh, starting to look at, at some of the dimensions that they are personally very happy with and saying uh, we're actually going to have to make some trade-offs there if, if we're going to maintain a society that works for everyone. Okay, well, uh, leave it to me to be the contrarian on the panel. Um, so let me first start off by saying this, right? Trump's going to win next time, right? Let me just start off right there, right? He is, I said it in 15, I said it in 16, and I was right, right? And so we can discuss this over drinks, right, later on if you have any questions about this. <laughs> so, all right. Again, leave it to me to be the contrarian. I think we are. I think the next civil war has started. Uh, and the first shot was fired after Obama's election. So let me run you through a few things here real quick. Started with the Tea Party. Stormed on the scene in 2009 with the Tax Day Tea Parties. They claim to reject big government. That is to say spending, taxes, regulation, and deficit reduction. But check out what happened on Bush's watch, right? First term deficit expanded more than any other time in history. Increased discretionary spending. Um, also increased entitlement spending. And entitlement spending increased by 49% on his watch. Now, adjusted for inflation, the federal budget increased by 104% on Bush's watch, right? Clinton's only increased by 11%, right? And the reason why I say this is because the Tea Party was supposedly about fiscal responsibility, right, and smaller government. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, Bush entered office with a $700 million surplus. He departed, however, with a $1.3 billion deficit. That's a $2 billion swing, you guys. TARP, furthermore, was initiated on Bush's watch. Now, some conservatives were upset, but the Tea Party was nowhere to be found. Right, so why is this important? Because the Tea Party paved the way for Trump. It's the same basic people, you guys. Now, you don't see a whole lot of news or no news coverage on the Tea Party these days because 90% of them are Trump supporters, right? So it's not like they win any place. Um, so when people make this claim it's about economic anxiety, right? That's a bunch of No, it's not, right? It really is not. Right? And the reason why that's important is because think about Trump supporters. Two-thirds of Trump supporters, have, have, they're in the top half of the economic distribution. Furthermore, Trump won 48% of college-educated white people. 
versus Hillary Clinton's 45%. So when we talk about this working class stuff, we really need to rethink that, right? It is a serious problem. And it's a problem because some of the policy prescriptions that are associated with that are more economic fairness, right? But what, what about these people who have no worries economically? What about those people? Which is not to say that working class people didn't support Trump, right? I'm not saying that they did not. But there are other reasons why they supported Trump and they supported the Tea Party. And it's not all about race. It's all about difference, right? So when we think about the divides that Jamel had us, you know, um, look at an email, some of the, you know, he wanted to prep us for what we were going to discuss about these divides. So think about what a real American, quote unquote, is, right? White, male, middle class or better off, straight, native born. Christian. If you can't check all of those boxes, you are not a real American. Period. All right. So the divide is much larger than what we've discussed here. And it's not I want to emphasize it's not just about race. Right. It's all across these these um, categories um, in which division can take place. Right. So I'm going to I'm going to stop right here. But just think about the rise in hate crimes. Right? Well, let me one one last thing. Uh, whether or not a civil war is taking place right now. No, not in a, in, a, in a conventional sense, right? But if you think about relative to where we should be, right, I think one can make the claim that a, the next civil war has started. So I think if, if you pull together all of these, all of your um, sort of takes on the divide, one thing, one sort of through line uh, that occurs to me is how in the past you might be committed to this traditional real American identity, but you may also live in a more economically diverse neighborhood. Um, your political sort of who you voted for didn't necessarily track in this sort of like narrow identity way. Maybe you're a, a, a white working class union guy, you vote for Democrats, you're still very religiously conservative, all these things. Um, and what it seems like is happening in the present is that everything is uh, aligned along a partisan axis in a way that it wasn't before. And this gets to what Tom was saying about effective partisanship. Um, that it's, if, if, if you are uh, a, a white traditional American, uh, then you are also a Republican, then also all these other things kind of cascade down into vote in a way that touches any one of those identities is, that, that contradicts any one of those identities, just as sort of, you can't do it anymore, right? You can't, maybe you have an economic interest to vote for a Democrat, but like your identity, your social identity is aligned against that. Um, my question for everyone is, if that is a dynamic that's happening, if that's sort of what's sort of behind some of the divisions, in our society, what are the prospects for disentangling that? Like, what are the structural prospects for disentangling that? And Oren, I know since you talked about um, the ways in which economic segregation is really shaping our society, I feel like that's that's. I'd like to hear your take on that because that seems to be a part of the part of the puzzle here. Yeah, I think it's a great way of putting it. Um, I, I I want to say briefly one thing about Trump because I didn't talk about Trump at all initially, and I just want to emphasize how overdetermined Trump's victory is. I mean, it's very easy to see Obama was living in the White House, now Trump is living in the White House, America is completely different. But if you actually compare the, 
the election returns from 2012 to 2016, the share of whites who voted for Romney and voted for Trump was virtually identical. The, the actual difference was that Trump did slightly better with non-whites, and Hillary won the popular vote by three million people, and the, you know, who, who is actually sitting in the White House was a function of tens of thousands of people in a few states. So to, psychologically, the Obama to Trump switch feels massive as a description of what is actually happening in the country and who the people in America are and how they feel, it, there, I just don't think there's very much evidence for it. Um, when, when I talk about the, the sort of economic divide and, and what that means structurally, the, one place I think is incredibly important to start is on the education front and, and how we conceive of college. Um, I think the folks who sort of at one point had college for all as the mindset, and now we're backing off that a little bit, but that's certainly still the aspiration for everybody. Um, I think that that was very well-meaning, but it, it has proven to not at all reflect people's capabilities, interests, whatever you want to ascribe it to. Most Americans still aren't earning even an associate's degree. And yet, that's where we put all of our focus in high schools. That's where we put all of our resources for post-secondary. Increasingly, HR departments just throw, requires college degree on the description for absolutely no reason. Uh, and so both in policy terms, shifting that and saying, you know what, actually, if, if you think college is a good fit for you, that's great, but we owe at least as much, and given where we are as a society, we probably owe more to the non-college side of the equation uh, is a huge shift. But then culturally talking about that differently and recognizing that, for one thing, most people, you know, the phrase is they, they work to live, they don't live to work. What their job is is not the purpose of their life. Um, the idea of a dead-end job is offensive and foreign, and a job is something you do to provide for your family and support all the other things you're going to do with your life. Um, and so all of our commencement speeches and all of our energy behind this idea of the job is self-fulfillment and purpose and so forth, um, that's not actually healthy for, for what most people aspire to and are likely going to, uh, to have at the core of their life either. So, so I think that's a huge piece to put at the center of the discussion. Uh, and then briefly, just to, to kind of flesh out around that, I think we have to recognize there are all sorts of trade-offs on things like environmental quality. If you earn 200K a year working in an office, always, always preferencing the cleaner environment is smart. Uh, if you earn 35K a year in a job in the industrial economy, you, you would strike a different trade-off a lot of the times. Um, on questions like immigration and trade, uh, your interests are just different depending on which side of this divide you're on. I think we could do a much better job supporting organized labor, not 1930s-style unions, which workers don't even say they want for the most part at this point, but some sort of infrastructure that supported workers in, in civil society uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. So I think those are the kinds of things that, that we have to recognize. We've, we've convinced ourselves that exactly the set of the policy agenda that, that we like is also happens to be best for everybody. And, and it's not actually. Uh, my thought is really that the country is gonna be in bad shape on these divisions until people become, accept, come to terms with the fact that the United States is gonna become a majority minority country fairly soon. I think this is an aggravating problem that underlies a lot of the tension that's taking place. Uh, and I would say it would behoove Democrats in this case. Uh, they have strong support for uh, 
the legalization of immigrants who are in this country now, that they should also, as Bill Clinton and Barack Obama did, emphasize border security just to keep some peace. People, regular, normal people, are uncomfortable with the idea of open borders. And I think Democrats have to assert that we do have borders and that we are going to uh, guard them. But I think they can also continue to press for the liberalization of uh, policies towards immigrants who are in this country now, that there is strong support for that, clearly for DACA, but also for all immigrants. But I think Democrats have to back off a little from the sense of being, being allowing themselves to be perceived as the party of open borders. Uh, and that would ease the transition in the national, the whole public, towards the idea that we are going to become a majority-minority country. Yeah. So Tom is totally on point with this. There have been several studies in social psychology that show that when white people are primed with the fact that by 20, I think it's at 2042, this is going to be a majority-minority country, that they were more likely to vote for Trump. And this has been replicated many, many times. So Tom is right on point with this. And, and uh, another thing I want to add, so there was Senate Bill 744, the Comprehensive Immigration Reform Plan that passed the Senate and, and had bipartisan support but didn't get through the House, right? Now, that was a very, very conservative bill by any measure, right? Grover Norquist was behind it. Uh, the Wall Street Journal was behind it. The Bush family was behind it, right? But it still did not get through the House. And you know why? It's, it's about this idea that America, so what drives a lot of the division right now is this idea among Trump-supporting whites is that we're losing our country, right? And, they, and the reason why Trump can get away with so much is because they see him as the last best thing between them and the rest of us, right? So let's just cut through all the BS right now, right? Furthermore, on the economic divide, so let me, let me speak to this for a second. And I know from the outside looking in, it looks like that is a viable explanation um, as one of the divisions, right? But when we think about the economic divide and the right wing, for example, when we think about the Klan of the 1920s, a bunch of those guys were professionals, right? Lawyers, doctors, uh, teachers, right? Not saying that some of them weren't you know, from the lower middle class or the working class, but there were a fair number of them that were really well-to-do. Let's fast forward to the John Birch Society, the forerunners, in my estimation, to the Tea Party and Trump, right? Those people were really, were relatively well-off, right? So let's not, I, I don't want to get stuck on this economic divide stuff because it does not hold up to empirical scrutiny. Sison? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ch chime in on something that was said over, over here about um, this idea that people's identities are now so t tied, uh, tied so tightly to Democrat or Republican, and that's, you were mentioning that. And, and I think in a, lot of, in a lot of ways that does make sense, but it also doesn't resonate with things that I've seen on the ground, which is just people feeling completely disaffected from our democratic system overall and either becoming into, like, um, registering independent or or um, not identifying with either party, and so um, I think that's almost in some ways more dangerous because people, um, you know, just don't see anyone in in politics today who they do associate with, um, and I think a lot of that is driven by um, 
social platforms, which we haven't talked about yet, but misinformation on Facebook and Twitter that they're seeing that just sort of um, creates like a, just, just a complete disaffection with the whole system. So, yeah. I mean, do you, do you see the, the you know, Facebook uh, misinformation and Twitter misinformation as like a driving force? Or do you see this sort of reflecting things that are already happening in society? Like, would it, is it making it worse? Is it causing it? Or, or take away Twitter, take away Facebook? Do we still have the kind of divisions we have? I, yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> um, I, think that, I think that it's driving a lot of it. I mean, I think that if we could create spaces, when it, you asked about untangling all this, if we could create spaces that are not on Facebook or Twitter um, where people can get together and talk about real issues, um, that, that would go a long way to, to start to untangle it. Because, yeah, I think that... Um, the amount of time um, that people spend on these platforms and the fact that people get all of their information from them is just, yeah, I think it's um, exacerbating a lot of divisions that we already have in the country, yeah. I mean, it's sort, of, it's sort of difficult to figure out what a way forward is because if, if these divisions are tied to things that are pretty elemental, like racial identity, um, if we're looking at like, degrees of social segregation and sort of deep partisanship, um, I, I myself could not tell you, could not begin to tell you how one begins to mitigate that to get, say, white Americans um, or Trump-supporting white Americans to begin to like understand their uh, their identities less in terms of opposing Im immigrants or black people, or whomever, and more in terms of something else, or getting uh, you know upper middle class people to to look at. Uh, the way this, the economy is working and figure out ways to make it work better for people, not them. Um, so I'd just be curious to know, like, what, if you're, if you're thinking about what can we do, and it's just always going to be like a, a it's always going to be a divided society in some ways, or big, diverse, a lot of people, but to try to turn down the temperature on some of these things um, versus kind of letting the current, current at least political trends continue um, leading to, you know, maybe a lot of engagement, but a lot of just anger around elections or so. Like, how do you, how do you turn that temperature down? Uh, I'm not sure how you turn it down. I think what you're pointing to, though, is, is the liberal dilemma. Uh, if you want to change society, which liberals tend to and conservatives tend to want to keep the status quo or even go back, that means some people are gained and some people are going to lose. Right here in uh, Seattle, homelessness is a big problem. Uh, and you're either going to have policies to build facilities for homeless people that will anger people in those communities. Again, all liberal, basically, in this case. Uh, desegregation, uh, the, the, the whole effort in New York City to open the elite schools to... Uh, uh, blacks and Hispanics. Uh, all of these involve a transfer, busing involved, costs and benefits. And liberals do this and it makes them vulnerable to attack. It's, it's an inherent problem of liberalism. Anytime you're on the, you're advancing social change, you are gonna be causing disruption and you're, you're altering the status quo. That makes you it's a politically difficult situation, and 
In many cases, liberals have not handled this well. And I don't know how the answer is, but for example, if you take busing in Boston, the, the busing order in Boston was to integrate schools in poor black Roxbury and poor white South Boston. They could have gone Roxbury and affluent white West Roxbury. They could have gone across uh, uh, county lines into the uh, suburbs, Weston and uh, all these very comfortable places. They, but they chose one that pit two poor populations. And if you're bu busing your kid as a cost, if you're a, a black parent, you're gonna worry like hell having your kid being bused into South Boston. And if you're a white parent in South Boston, you're gonna have the same fears of the kid going into Roxbury. And it's a long bus ride. These are costs. If you want to have these, though, you have to really think them through. Affirmative action tends to pit people of the same class. One group wants to be a, a blacks want to be a cop, whites want to be a cop. It's not pitting, it, it's the people who really defined segregation and created segregation are not being forced to pay the penalty you're pitting two populations against each other and dividing a population. So that a lot of, if I think liberal, liberalism has to think through what it wants to do and how to do it in the most equitable fashion. And that, just to add an added problem to this is that the left, the Democratic Party, has become increasingly elite. College-educated voters are more and, and basically well-affluent people here in, in Seattle. It's, it's a case study in this. They are, and they have a lot to lose if you're gonna start having policies that benefit the other half of the Democratic coalition, which is the uh, uh, heavily minority population at the bottom. So you have a lot of conflicts within liberalism that need to be resolved and have not been resolved. Okay. No more joy for me. You want to take it there? Or? Do you want to go? Yeah. I'll say, I mean, I think it's an interesting tension between the sort of social and, and policy-related explanations because on the one hand, I think there are a tremendous number of policy levers, things we have wrong that help explain what's happened and things we could do better. But at the end of the day, that doesn't get you very far if you don't have a political coalition that, that's going to enact any of it. And so, I mean, my sort of pithy way of looking at it is to say, you know, in a democracy, a miserable majority is, is everybody's problem. And things that can't continue won't. And one of the things we are seeing right now in, in this country is a pretty significant political realignment. You know, Tom just described one half of it, which is um, the elites shifting further into the, into the Democratic Party. And obviously the other side is the shift you see coming into the Republican Party. Um, and, and, and it's important. The funny thing about that is it's going to produce very interesting... Um, coalitions. I mean, I think, you know, your point about the immigration bill is well taken, but, but the reality is that Grover Norquist, the Wall Street Journal, and, and the Bush family are all open borders proponents, essentially. So to say it was a conservative policy because Grover Norquist, the Wall Street Journal, and the 
Bush family supported it doesn't tell you anything. It just tells you that on, on an issue like that in particular, the parties as we had defined them weren't really aligned with the interests that um, and, and, and issue set in a way. And so I see this going one of two ways. One is we're just going to reconcentrate into these two groups that look a little bit different and it's roughly 50-50 and things keep getting worse. Uh, or I think we're going to see some recognition uh, at the top end that something's gonna have to give. And there are plenty of times throughout history where, uh, where you have those kinds of awakenings in, on, on all sorts of different fronts. I think the key distinction is that, in particular, the, the last one that we had around the sort of the great society in the 60s and so forth was incredibly focused on the idea of redistribution. The idea was that if we, if we tax one group and, and send money or resources to the other group, that, that that's going to, to solve the problems. Um, by and large, that, that has not solved the problems. And it's caused a lot of confusion when people say, who are these low-income Republican voters who are voting against their interests? And in some way, you have to say, well, maybe that's, maybe the, that's not their interests. Um, there's what I would call social redistribution, which is reorienting fundamental institutions in our society to take different people's interests and abilities into account. And, and it remains to be, that is a much more painful form of redistribution to accept if you are the givers. Um, I am optimistic that, that the American people are going to be ultimately open to that, but, but I think that is sort of where the rubber is going to meet the road on whether we're going to have uh, a willingness to accept that kind of shift in where we allocate power in a sense. So let me work backwards on this. So I'm gonna hit the uh, redistributive issue uh, in terms of the social safety net. So if you look at um, the United States and Great Britain, I mean, the social safety nets in these respective countries are really, really shallow, if you will. However, the social safety nets in Scandinavia, when it comes to redistributive policies, right, is very, very generous. Now what's the difference? United States and Great Britain and the UK are very diverse countries, right? And so it's harder for people, and the social science bears this out, to want to redistribute or be willing to redistribute money and resources to people who don't look like them than they are to people who look like them. So let's get that off the table right now. It's not, it's a matter of context. Second of all, um, when it comes to some solutions, uh, political solutions, um, I have not given up on, at all, on all of the right. It's just the reactionaries on whom I've given up, right? There are differences between establishment conservatives and reactionaries, right? And establishment conservative, as Tom said, is all about the status quo. A reactionary actually wants to go backwards in time, right? That is to say, they want to there's a sense of nostalgia associated with their identity, right? A conservative, if we really think about what a conservative is, a conservative is a pragmatist above and beyond everything else, right? These reactionaries are idealists, right? They feel like their country is being stolen from them and they want it back. And the difference when it comes to change, right? Social change, Tom also mentioned this as well. So it's not like conservative, an establishment conservative actually wants change because they prefer the status quo, right? But they will, they're willing to go along with change so long as it preserves a stable liberal society, right? That's what they really want. 
right? They want the observation of law and order and a stable society above and beyond everything else. A reactionary doesn't really care about that. They're concerned about maintaining their social group's prestige, and they're willing to do everything and anything to achieve that. So, so whereas uh, an establishment conservative sees differences between parties, right, as political differences, a reactionary will see um, social change and differences as, you know, we're compromising, and if, excuse me, differences as, you know, uh, trying to fix these differences as compromise, and because they have this Manichaean view of politics, good versus evil, that's why it's so difficult for them to compromise. That's the key. An establishment conservative is willing to compromise. A reactionary is not, because they see it as a capitulation to evil. So it's time for the Q&A. I have um, this wonderful little thing here that sends your questions my way, and so I'm just going to ask um, uh, the best ones to the panel. Um, so one, one question kind of gets at this, this uh, sort of the racial divide, to some, to some extent the regional and geographic divide, and the question is, what consequences can we anticipate when America does become majority minority, but many of our institutions, like the Senate, overrepresent white rural America? I, I think these tensions will continue, the, but the only, when the white majority, what is now the white majority, recognizes that it's in the white minority, and things don't really change that much for them, I think they will be able to come to terms with the idea of being in the minority much more easily than they are now, where they feel they are gonna lose a tremendous something, their identity, their, their centrality, uh, their, uh, uh, their, their dominant role. I think when that happens, a lot of whites are going to just say, eh, so it wasn't all that bad. Uh, and at that point, things will slowly change. I think this is going to be a very slow process. I don't see this happening in any overnight magic moment. And I think it's just going to be one that evolves as the country becomes different and people slowly come to terms with this different country. But we're talking decades now. We're not talking even uh, five, ten years or two elections away. We're talking two, three, four decades as much. And there can be an awful lot of terrible things happening between then and, and then and now. So, uh, uh, and, and there will be institutions, obviously, that will continue to support the older majority, the Senate being one of them. Uh, corporations will be uh, will be another uh, on and on and on uh, but those will all follow even slower in the process yeah um, I would generally agree with that I think um, yeah I mean I think there's going to be just from from the beat that I cover I would guess that there would be just yeah, a lot of violence between now. I mean, I think that I think that the narrative that um, Trump has successfully sown um, that you know there needs to be um, 
his constituents are are looking to hold on to you know something that they have had in the past and and feeling left behind and dispossessed is this narrative that I hear a lot coming from the people I'm interviewing and that we hear a lot from Trump um, whether that's a job or like the safety of being in the majority in a in quickly quickly changing country I mean I think there will probably be a lot of doubling down on that politically and we'll see more um, yeah more re reactionary reactionary politics um, and uh, hopefully my hope is that you know we'll see changes on the social on social media platforms um, to try to you know stave some of that off but um, yeah I would I would I would agree that there's going to be some hard stuff between now and then. I, I would make two quick points. One is, you know, not only is it going to happen slowly, but our definition of white and non-white is is somewhat malleable as well. It's not clear to me if third-generation uh, Hispanic immigrants are we're even going to conceive of them as non-white any more than we conceive of third-generation Italian. I mean, the history of America on, on a lot of dimensions is to redefine the majority to be whatever the majority is over time. Um, so uh, given how slow it's going to happen, I think it's important to keep in mind a lot of other things are going to be happening. Um, but then the second thing, just to, regarding the Senate, I, I, someone should say this, so I will. Um, the left is going to have to get over the fact that the Constitution has a certain set of political structures in it. I mean, the you know Democrats controlled the House and the Senate nonstop for 40 years. Um, they had a, you know, they had a, a filibuster-proof majority in 2009. The Supreme Court was a reliable ally of liberal causes for at least a generation, um, and now some of those things are shifting the other way. And you can't respond by saying, like, well, then we'd better pack the court two years from now. Um, partly just because it's, I mean, it's it's not going to work. Um, but but at the end of the day, the you know a core insight of political science is that the political parties align and define themselves around the rules of the game and the median voter. And if the idea that if you somehow change the rules a little bit, you know, liberalism, you might end up moving the parties three percent or whatever one way or the other. But it it um, it it isn't an explanation for for what's going on. It's not going to be a cure. Um, and and, and I don't know how much it, it adds to the conversation on a on a day to day basis. So let me just um, address. I'm, you guys did a fantastic job on answering a political question. I want to get back to this white non white binary and this notion that you know like you know Latinos for example Latinx may or may not be considered consider themselves. I think that's where you were going. Um, white or not white. Well, the literature suggests that with each succeeding generation, they become more sensitive to discrimination, right? And that makes them more likely to identify with, with the Latino race, if you will, right? So it's not like they become more white, like, like European immigrants. That is not the story. Time for one more question. It kind of directly relates to this uh, this question of sort of like racial change, um, I want to ask it, and that is, you know, if if going forward, the only way for these divides to these many divides is to to heal or to the temperature to come down is for some degree of compromise. What what happens when, as in the current situation? 
the one of the axes of sort of political disagreement is simply like the degree to who can be included in the political system itself. I'm whoever asked this question, I'm like rephrasing it a bunch, but getting to the heart of it. But um, yeah, like what if especially in this moment, right? Like if what say some of the Trump base wants effectively is to close off the meaning of what it means for to be an American to a whole category of people, then how does one deal with that in the course of trying to build a less divided society? We have one minute to answer that question. <laughs> I mean, this is something where the courts should intervene and they have not been intervening all the, in voter suppression and other matters. When there are distinctions being made that categorize one group as lesser than another, that is simply un-American, and that's at the point, that's the point when really the courts should be asserting themselves, and they have not been, they've been mixed on this record of late, and, uh, but that is a real function of, of a, the, in the, in the American system of the courts. I don't know, so many thoughts, but I, I guess I would say, you know, seeing this moment as what what some people would call this as like potential cultural civil war, but instead seeing it as an opportunity to like self-reflect and try to figure out who we want, who we are, who we want to be in the future. Um, and I think I think it was your writing that said sort of like recognizing that um, some of these more extreme elements are not strangers, and sort of like taking that into account as we um, move forward and think about how we can come together instead of um, having these deep divisions. So. Yeah. Time is up. Um, <laughs> thank you so much to the panelists. Thank you to the audience. Thank you for coming. Thanks for listening to Crosscut Talks. This week's episode was recorded by Rusty Bacall and produced by Sarah Bernard. Audio from the Crosscut Festival was recorded by Seattle Theater Group. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And for the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.